The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. My name is Nathan Carden. I'm a lead pastor here, and whether you're on site with us or maybe you're joining us online, we're grateful you're here, and we trust that God has something to say to all of us together today. May we pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And God's people say, can you name a friend from when you were in elementary school? Could you, if we asked you to name your best friend from elementary school? But individually, I won't ask you to raise your hands for this one. If I were to follow up with another question, who outside of your immediate family is your best friend today? And when's the last time you spoke to them? we would not answer as immediately as we do to those first questions. We live, as many people, faith perspectives and non-faith perspectives have noticed, we live in an age where the art of making and keeping deep friendships is kind of lost. Now, lots of us have casual acquaintances. We have, you know, Facebook, social media friends. We have people that we have fun with because we go to a sporting event with them or we share an interest in a hobby, that sort of thing. But I'm talking about when your soul is depleted or when you're scared or you're making a big decision or you're simply feeling lonely, you know that as soon as you communicate with this person, they're going to get it. And you can be completely vulnerable and at ease with them. We live in an age that cuts against the nurturing of those kinds of relationships. I mean, think about these different factors that weigh into that for us. In the modern world, we have a lightning fast pace of life where we have to schedule and safely guard leisure time or else we won't have any. We also have cultural divisiveness over the last five to ten years. And some of us are tempted to kind of retreat into echo chambers. And and we kind of guard ourselves against the possibility of engaging in communication or making a new friend because what if they think about something differently than I do? And my goodness, there's no shortage of things to have opinions about these days. Or we live more transient lifestyles. You know, in previous generations, it was not uncommon for people to enter the world, live their lives, and then exit the world within a few miles of all of just the same kind of community. And now it's not uncommon to change jobs every four to six years and move states and maybe even moves, move countries. There's also been shifts in the dynamics of family culture so that children are no longer cared for by their parents and the parents go on to pursue interests of their own All of the parents' life is surrounded or focused on helping their children fulfill their own dreams or sometimes the dreams the parents have of their own through their children. This kind of, these dynamics that have made it very difficult to make and deepen strong friendships led Julie Beck in an article in The Atlantic just in March of last year to coin a phrase, the friendship desert of modern adulthood. And in this article, She talks about how, you know, I don't know, 15, 18 years ago, there was the advent of online dating. 
And you could go to a variety of websites and kind of create a profile, and you might meet new people from doing that. And now you can do the same thing for platonic friendships because we find it so difficult naturally to develop friendships. So what are the dimensions, two dimensions of true friendship? I believe that they are two. The first is trust. That encompasses loyalty. They're not going to turn their back on you. It certainly includes confidence. You trust them to hold things in confidence. And steadfastness. They can be counted on in a moment of need. And the second dimension is joy. You see, I can have trust in my physician, but I may not go play golf with my physician. Being a friend and having a deep friendship is, a, is something you brings you pleasure. You enjoy being with them. You enjoy sharing a meal with them or going to a ball game or another event with them. So how can we begin to reclaim as Christians, from our perspective, the lost art of friendship? Well, as with most existential questions of the human condition from the Christian perspective, we wind back the pages and go back to the beginning. So today, I'm not giving you three biblical tips on how to win friends and influence people. You can get that from a TED Talk, okay? Today, I want to offer you what I believe are four parts to a biblical understanding of friendship. And it starts with the biblical origin of friendship. The very first chapter of the Bible, in that great narrative of God's creative work to bring the world into existence, on day number six, the author says, God said, let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, and every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on the earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything that's crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds, and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food. To all wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, and to everything crawling on the ground, and to everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything He had made. It was supremely good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The first dimension of friendship in the origin of it begins with the nature of the one who spoke creation into existence. It's the relational nature of God. Did you catch in those verses when God decided to make humanity, God says, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us. Now, look, Christians are monotheists. We believe there is one true God. We are not polytheists where we believe in multiple gods. We believe that God has existed from all eternity in complete perfection. So why is there plural language here? It didn't say, let me make humankind in my image to resemble me. No, it uses communal language of us. 
Well, there's a couple of different ways to interpret that. Maybe God is talking out loud about or in front of the heavenly court of angels because angels did exist before human beings. But more likely, we're given a hint here in the first chapter of Genesis of God's triune nature as the Father who creates and the Son through whom God expresses creation and the Spirit which is hovering over the waters in those early verses of creation. We learn this by flipping over to the New Testament. The book of Colossians says in chapter 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation, because all things were created by Him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So the one God who exists as a community of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the one who creates and the one who makes humanity to reflect that image. What's the point of of, of pointing that out? C.S. Lewis got it. He said, All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, God was not love. If God, however, is unified relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit living in perfect community, and then human beings are made in the image of God, God longs for loving friendship and made humanity with the hunger and capacity for loving friendship. And that brings about the second dimension of what it means to be friends. The relational nature of humanity. So in Genesis 1, humanity is made in the image of God, endowed with our Creator with certain God-like qualities, and then we reflect those qualities in the world because God is fundamentally made for loving relationship or designed as loving relationship, then we are as well. So if you move from chapter 1, which is kind of like a telescope, and read chapter 2, which is kind of like a microscope for creation, Hear how intimately God is involved in the creation of humanity in God's image. The Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. So the Lord God formed from the fertile land all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, and brought them to the human to see what he would name them. The human gave each living being its name. The human named all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, but a helper for him was nowhere to be found. Isn't it interesting that the first human is made completely perfect, yet feels lonely? How could you be perfect and not be completely self-sufficient? It seems like you would not be perfect if you felt like you were lacking something. Well, Dr. Tim Keller has a beautiful observation here. Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friendship is the one ache that is not the result of sin. 
This is the one ache that is part of his perfection. Now, like some of your families, I don't know if you caught it in the story about how God said it's not good for the human to be alone, and so God makes livestock and birds. Like many of your families, we have a dog at home. He's the sixth member of our family, Clarence Oddbody Carden. He's two and a half years old, and he is a good boy and a bad dog. Like, we love him, but he does not respect us, and he thinks he's in charge, and so we wrestle him um, constantly to try to not break his will, but conform his will like we do with our own kids. We love him. He's a great companion to the family. He brings us a lot of laughter and joy. But I can't wait for him while we're walking one day for him to look up and say, you know, as you look back across your 41 years, is life turning out the way that you hoped that it would turn out? (laughs) He has never contemplated my future. He doesn't even contemplate his own. He just goes to the food bowl and the water bowl and goes to play and just will do that until one day he won't. It was inadequate for the mammalian and avian life that God created to be a suitable friend, a companion for this first human, Adam. And so, God makes a helpmate. We don't have the time today to read the full story, the rest of Genesis 2, but I think you remember, God calls a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, the human. God opens up his side and takes a portion of his side from him and forms a new human being, a counterpart. And for the first time, the language of gender enters the story. Now it's male and female. And when Adam's awakened and God brings his counterpart to him, he says, at last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, she is like me. And the first human friendship enters into human history. Everything's been beautiful and perfect up to this point in the story. But that's the end of chapter 2. And in chapter 3, a cunning devious character enters the scene. And that's part three of the story of human friendship, which is the nature of humanity fallen. In chapter three, the writer says, the snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat from the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. Snake said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food, that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both saw clearly and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord in the middle of the garden's trees. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man replied, I heard your sound in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. You remember what the two dimensions to deep and abiding friendship are? Trust and joy. 
In the story of Genesis 3, in multiple places, and even into the beginning of Genesis 4, we begin to see the breakdown of pure, harmonious human friendship, human relationship. For instance, in verse 12, do you know about a trusting friendship when one person, wherein one person is confronted with something and they immediately point to someone else and throw them under the bus? I don't. Listen in verse 20. It would be after this part. After God gives the consequences for the sin that they've committed, the very first thing that happens is Adam turns to his wife and names her. You know, up to this point, there's been this beautiful equality, this counterpart balance between Adam and Eve. You hear that in the language of her creation from his side. Part of him is taken, and then that's closed, and then they're brought back together. And now... Adam does to Eve by naming her what God had told him or given him permission to do with taking charge and having dominion and power over the animals. Adam had named the animals and after sin enters the world, he turns and names his wife. That doesn't sound like trust and joy to me. It sounds like power struggles and the attempt for dominion. In chapter 4, their offspring, Cain and Abel, the older son, frustrated and resentful that his younger brother's offering has been accepted by God and God does not accept his, he lures his brother out to a field where he kills him. There's anger and violence that enter into human relationship. What I'm saying, friends, is this. Blame and trust cannot coexist in the same space. Paranoia and joy cannot coexist in the same space. Violence and anger vacates both joy and trust. When human beings reject God's instructions, we suffer breakdowns in human friendship. Paul David Tripp, who's an author that I read sometimes in devotional writing, says that while we may not be convicted murderers like Cain was, we've been living in conflict-ridden relationships ever since, and we do our fair share to contribute to that conflict every day. And that's the story of human life. That's the story of Nathan Carden. And I suspect that's part of your life story too. We struggle with keeping relationships in the perfect created harmony God intended. That's the third dimension of human friendship in its origin. But thanks be to God, there is a fourth dimension. And it is God's restoration of friendship. Like all of God's solutions... God's solution to the sin and destruction that entered the world in Eden through the failure of a first Adam is by bringing about in the fullness of time the birth of a second Adam. Paul says is Jesus Christ our Lord. Where the first Adam failed, the second perfect human succeeded. And he gives you and me the power and example for how to be a true friend, reflecting the image of God perfectly. Let me give you an example. At the end of Jesus' three years of ministry, with His 12 disciples, He gathers at the Passover meal. And in John 15, we are given the opportunity to eavesdrop on one of the most intimate and precious conversations in all of the Bible. Jesus is speaking to His friends and He says, As the Father loved me, I too have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. I've said these things to you so that my joy will be in you 
and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know, we read John 3.16 about how God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And we think about Jesus coming for the whole world. And that's amazing. But it really gets personal and intimate when we see the full humanity of Jesus modeled in intimate friendships with His disciples. Think for a minute who's around that table. The 12 disciples earlier in the story have been called by name by Jesus to follow Him. We're not given any hint that Jesus put them through a vetting, background check, and interview process. He didn't show up along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee with a clipboard with 19 boxes to check and say, Simon Peter, come over here. I've got a few questions for you. Simon Peter thinks he's meeting a census taker or something. We're not given any of that. Jesus just calls them whatever their background is, whatever their life circumstances are, and says, follow me. These friends of His, after three years, within 12 hours' time, will have completely abandoned Him in His greatest hour of need. He's about to be publicly executed as an enemy of the state and the religious institution in Jerusalem. This is His last meal. And He invites to His last meal his closest friends who he knows will betray and abandon him? Can you think of a more gracious act of friendship than that? And a second dimension to that, by the way, is how he made them friends with each other. And I'd just like to pick out two characters for you to imagine. One of the disciples is called Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a group of rebels in the first century, and they advocated and were constantly organizing as kind of a first century militia. And they wanted nothing more than the violent overthrowing of the Romans to drive them out of Israel. They hated the Romans. Simon the Zealot. Another one, Matthew the tax collector, who was a Jewish man, who had decided that he could get rich by turning his back on his own people, siding with the Romans, and collecting taxes, and then extorting his own people. What do you think Simon the Zealot thought about Matthew the tax collector? You begin to see? And yet somehow through Jesus Christ, through His power and His example, He says that they're friends. He's friends with them, and now they're friends together. Jesus Christ is the full restoration of the image of God in the world. And He shows us how we can be friends with God and gives us the power to be friends with others. The first step for Christians in reclaiming the lost art of friendship is to come to know Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners by His own language, who gives us the example and power of trusting and joyful friendship. You may expect to hear that, but don't mistake something you expect to hear with a lack of depth. Jesus Christ becoming alive within your heart and soul will empower you to be a friend that you wouldn't be able to be on your own. This past October, our family had a sad event. Some of you are aware my wife lost her beloved Nana, her mother's mother, 
This is a picture of Cameron and her nana. It was taken about three years ago. Um, nana, uh, well, I'll just read it for you. My wife wrote this obituary that other family members, after Cameron had written the draft, offered some contribution to in response to as well. Every facet of her life was informed by her faith and her love for her Heavenly Father. An active member of Crossview Church of God of Prophecy for her entire life, she served faithfully as missions director for many years. She wasn't crafty, but Arlene Laracy and the rest of the Dorcas Club took her in and loved her anyway. She clung to the scriptures and she prayed without ceasing. Hymns were the songs of her heart, but she never turned down the radio for Elvis or Charlie Rich either. She laughed loud, she laughed often, and she took Scrabble very seriously. She could be trusted with a secret, and we will never know how many she carried with her to her eternal home. Nell was known around town for her cream cheese pound cakes and divinity. Her comfort foods fed your soul as well as your belly. And then after the, those who survived her, it said, she also leaves behind her two best friends, Annette Saxon and Nadine Laracy. Their deep and abiding friendship withstood the test of time and countless coffee filters. She was the best friend any of us ever had, written by her granddaughter. In December of 2016, our family surprised Nana when she was still living in our hometown of South Georgia for an 80th birthday party. And we invited, of course, all of her friends and church acquaintances and church members in. This is a picture that we took of Nana with the two best friends named in that obituary. On the left is Annette Saxon, and then Nell Clark in the middle, and then on the right is Nadine Laracy. These three women were best of friends for over 60 years. When Nana entered the room, surprise, of course, was caught off guard with great joy. She hugged her family members, which were closest to her in the room, and then she locked eyes with one of these two women. And I had my camera there, and I just happened to snap a picture of it. This is Nana greeting her best friend, Nadine Laracy. You see the utter joy anticipating that embrace? I wonder if at the end of your life, someone can write an obituary about you as the best friend they ever had. I have an idea of how Nell came to be that kind of friend, not just to these two ladies, but to her own family, trusted and joyful. And I found some proof or some evidence of that on this slip of paper. A couple of years ago when dementia was robbing her nana of her ability to be able to read her Bible um, and, to, and to pray, my wife slipped out of her Nana's Bible, her prayer list. And on this prayer list, it says at the top, Lord, give me understanding and wisdom and peace. And then there's a long list, front and back, pencil, ink of different colors, people that she's praying for. I see her family. I see Arlene. I see members of her church, co-workers, neighbors, the school system. I see my name. And everybody that knew Nell knew that when she would get up in the morning and put on that Black & Decker coffee pot with like Folgers coffee, 
It would just be black as the night, and she would sit down at her Formica kitchen table in that tiny old ranch house, and she would have her King James Bible, the binding of which was falling apart, the pages wearing thin on some corners, and highlighters and pen and pencil marked all through it, and she would open it up, and she would read her Bible and sip her coffee, and then she would begin to pray. She would pray for her friends. And I happen to believe that it was that time, that 45 minutes to an hour, every morning in the 22 years that I knew her, I believe it was that practice that made her the kind of friend that was the best friend any of us ever had. Friends, the first step for Christians in reclaiming the lost art of friendship is to come to know Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who gives us the example and the power of trusting and joyful friendship. May we pray. We thank you, God, that out of the mystery and the depth of who you are, you have graciously sought us out and invited us to be friends with you. And this was not because of the merit of our actions. This was not because of our own innate goodness. We didn't even know that we needed to be friends with you. And some of us, for years and maybe even in the present moment, have been running away from that friendship. But still, you pursue us because you are a loving relationship at the core of your being. Thank you for creating us with the capacity and invitation to be friends with you and friends with one another. Make us, as the church at Ross Bridge, the kind of people that are a good friend to those in our lives. And may we experience the joy of that friendship returned. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The Church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.